702. The Political Desk. Well, everything we've uh, done these last 83 days, right, to flatten the curve, as you heard Philemon there suggest, um, has all been about limiting the numbers of infections to save lives. Everything we've done around all of that has been based on the modeling predictions of what would happen if we did nothing. So when the president shut down the economy late in March, I think it was, right, uh, we all went home. We were ready to sacrifice. The consensus, in fact, was that we were being uh, ably and boldly led. And then the cracks began to appear in the thinking that guided government. Uh, Dr. Sean Moller from uh, the uh, University of, Le- of Johannesburg is a senior economics lecturer there, joins us now on the line. Uh, Dr. Muller, good morning to you and thank you for your time. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Look, you heard what Philemon had to say there as uh, uh, he preempted our conversation. Uh, but just to sort of set the scene around what you are raising, uh, to be fair, modeling is not a, an exact science at the best of times. Uh, as you say, it is sophisticated guesswork. That's quite correct, Bongani. Um, I think that there are two initial points I should emphasize. Um, the first one, as you say, is that modeling is not an exact science. It, it rarely is um, in any discipline, whether economics, epidemiology, or even physics, where perhaps we get closest uh, uh, to a perfect science. Um, and and that relates to two things. The one is the structure of our models, and the other is the, um, the data we have to inform the parameters of the models. Um, when it comes to the uh, coronavirus, there are standard epidemiological models that have worked reasonably well in different contexts. But the thing is that we don't have data on, or at least we didn't have data for, for quite a long period of time, reliable data on um, transmissibility, uh, mortality rates, and, and those kinds of things. Um, so that's on the one side. But on the other side, of course, um, which was alluded to in your previous discussion, um, one needs to think about the consequences of policies responding um, to, to the actual health crisis or, or the epidemiological risks. So it is a very difficult situation. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that, as I, as I say in my article, as far as I'm concerned, I don't think there's much evidence at this point that the government acted um, in any way except with good intentions. Um, the problem is that policymaking is complex. So good intentions don't guarantee yeah. a good outcome. Um, and there are things about the way government went about uh, its decision-making around the key issues around the lockdown um, that were deeply unsatisfactory. So here's the thing. I mean, you heard Philemon there, and many people will uh, say the same thing, will echo his sentiment, uh, that we were told the plan was uh, for the health system's readiness, right? Um, and to be able to obviously at all times to uh, assess our effectiveness and how we're dealing with the pandemic. Uh, surely those were good things that we needed to buy that time. Well, I'm, I'm still completely unconvinced of that, unfortunately. I, I certainly agree with your framing of the situation, namely that um, I think citizens were persuaded that the government's actions uh, were correct um, and they were ready to, to make their own contribution. The evidence we have suggests that's true, surveys of citizen opinion and so forth. Um, for me, the, the government's exact strategy was never clear. And in fact, it still isn't clear what it was and even to some extent what it is now. So. Government was quite um, opaque in its decision making. It didn't say what information it was using. You know, the modeling that you referred to, one of, the, one of the things that concerned me most was when the president made his announcement, he referred to this modeling and there was no information provided whatsoever. 
That modeling still hasn't been released, to my knowledge, despite quite a few requests for it. There have been some leaks in the media, but there's never been an official release of what the projections were, how that informed uh, government's decision, and what government strategy was. Your previous caller was talking yeah. about mitigation and suppression in the same sentence, which doesn't make sense because, in fact, and, and what he says about models, unfortunately, is untrue. The most influential model um, of, of the COVID-19 pandemic, which led to many governments um, implementing lockdowns, was the Imperial College model, which, uh, as I recall, was published on the 16th of March, but may have been made available to governments um, shortly before that. Um, and in that model, it said you have to choose between suppression, which is, say, something that uh, New Zealand has achieved, for example. New Zealand has the advantage to be an island with a small population and so forth. They've achieved suppression, which is that the virus has just stopped spreading in the population. The other one is mitigation. Mitigation is when you accept the fact that the virus is going to spread through the population, but you try to limit the rate at which it's going to spread. Now, that's what flattening the curve is, is supposedly about. And, and we know that Zuelian Giza in particular used that terminology a lot. But if you look at the imperial model, the imperial model says, and, and the report that was published on the 16th of March, says that flattening the curve in their definition means reducing the number of critical care uh, cases um, below the number of ICU beds, right? So your ICU uh, facilities don't get overwhelmed. Right. Well, the government's own modelers recently released information suggesting that they expect up to 20,000, this is in the optimistic scenario, 20,000 critical care cases and 4,000 ICU beds. So the question is, what has that time actually brought us, first of all, on health system preparedness, um, on that key metric? And second of all, have the socioeconomic consequences been worth it? Because we know those undermine our ability in the medium run to sure. deal with health issues. But Dr. Miller, we've been able to stock up on PPEs. We've now got more beds at both ICU and critical care. We've got more ventilators. Uh, we've bought time to be able to put all of those measures in place before the storm hits. Well, Bongani, I'm really I'm not convinced about that. Certainly, on issues like PPEs, on um, on sort of what are called general hospital beds, uh, there's been an increase. If you see some of the pictures of those general hospital beds, it really is just mattresses set up in in stadia. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure the extent to which that counts. When it comes to ICU beds, uh, my understanding is that the numbers from the government's own modelers, the numbers haven't increased that much. Um, and we've also heard heard stories of cases where there are ICU beds set up but there aren't staff to man them. There's a story like that uh, uh, in the Eastern Cape. So the, the question is, certainly some work has been done, okay? But whether, whether the, the lockdown um, was justified in order to achieve that, we could have procured PPEs, we could have procured more beds and all of that without the lockdown being implemented. Sure, but wouldn't we have had greater numbers needing critical care or, or assistance at those hospitals? Well, well, we would have, but the thing is, the government anticipates now, the government anticipates that happening anyway. And in fact, you could argue that if your objective is to flatten the curve, um, then, then government would have wanted uh, a greater increase in those cases early on. I think if you, if, you, if you look carefully at some of the statements that were made, I think government was surprised um, that they didn't have a greater influx of critical care cases. There were stories where doctors were saying, we're sitting here, we're waiting, we're waiting for the storm to break, and it, it, it hasn't come. Um, because the thing is, flattening the curve is essentially meaning uh, in the government's own projections, they expect the majority of the population to be infected. So you need to spread those infections over time, but you don't have to spread them over an indefinite period of time because then you're going to have to maintain social distancing and, and, and soft lockdowns and so forth for a very long period of time. So the irony is, and I think many South Africans don't appreciate this, and I don't think the government's been sufficiently honest about this. Based on the government's own models, you actually want to accelerate the rate of infection because you want to, you, you want to kind of get it spread through the population 
at a slightly faster pace than it has been to date. Um, and so, you know, when, when, for example, controversies arise about the opening of schools and, and, and churches and that sort of thing, I think government needs to play open cards and say what it actually expects in terms of, um, of the infection rate that it would like. What is its optimal infection rate? We don't, we don't have any information about that. Um, so I think, you know, and, and what's really concerning is we still don't know how the government, how the National Command Council, using the scientific advisors on the yeah. advisory committee, exactly how that decision-making process is happening. In the UK, they've been forced to release the minutes of their meetings. We still haven't done that in South Africa. We were told at one stage it might uh, cause panic, uh, weren't we, Dr. Sean Miller? We'll have to leave it there. Senior Economics Lecturer at the University of Johannesburg. Was it then all worth it? I suppose what he's saying there is hardly surprising uh, when you think of the Social Development Minister, Lindwa Zulu, who was surprised at the impact of the lockdown on the poor. You wonder how widespread the shock might be amongst her colleagues in Cabinet.